Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing this morning? A little bit cooler today than it was yesterday. I actually walked out of the house, didn't feel like I was like walking underwater from all of the humidity. Uh, we had a great time last night at the barbecue contest. It was so much fun, so much good food and fellowship. We watched a movie and the kids had a good time making a mess and uh, didn't get a chance to post it yet. We might do this next week, but we had one of our older members of the congregation decide to give the bounce house a try. Um, and uh, we, we, may, we may show that video next week if we can get it, uh, get it posted there. <laughs> I'm not going to say who it was. Those of you who are there know who it was. All right. Um, I don't know if anybody notices anything different about the, the, the sanctuary this morning. Anybody notice anything different? Yes. What, Betty, what did you notice? What, what are you pointing at? The cross. The On the pulpit stand. Oh, that's been there forever. The carpeting. What? What about the carpeting? It's finished. It's finished. No, well, not quite. Anybody else? Oh, no, no, no. You guys don't get to answer. You've been here all week. No, we have extended our platform. We took down those, uh, those, uh, those temporary platforms and those steps where everybody kept killing themselves trying to get up the steps and they would fly, kind of flip over. So, uh, this past week, uh, Andy Simpson and Dave Creel came and extended the platform by five feet. So we actually now have more room up here, which means that we have room if you would like to join the praise team. Yeah, join the praise team. Woo! We are looking for people who can play instruments, guitar, uh, keyboard, drums. Um, if you are able to play an instrument, uh, if you are able to sing, uh, we would love to have you on the praise team. And if you want to uh, find out more about that, come and talk to Cindy uh, after church today. She's, uh, she's the head of our praise team, and she's going to uh, de definitely want to speak with you. Bless you. One more. There we go. All right. So, I have a question for, any, for you guys. Is anybody still... Uh-oh. My slides aren't... Oh, there we go. Anybody still exhausted? You remember this from last week? Wendy held this sign up. Egg sauce Ted. Anybody still exhausted this week? Anybody get any rest this week? All right. Some people got some rest. Last week, we talked about being exhausted physically. Uh, mentally and spiritually. And often we just go, 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 and we do things, and we work, and we, and we even, even our fun is exhausting until we just get so tired that we drop. And last week we spoke more about uh, physical and mental exhaustion, and this morning I want to talk a little more about spiritual exhaustion. And yes, there is such a thing as spiritual exhaustion, and, and how can there not be? As followers of Jesus Christ, we are constantly engaged in a battle against Satan, in a battle against evil. 
Satan would see our souls die. Satan would see us turn away and be separated from God the Father. And we are constantly in a battle for our souls. Before Jesus began his ministry, he spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness fasting and praying and being tempted by Satan to turn away from God the Father. Now we would think, well, that would be pretty easy for Jesus, right? I, I, no way he would turn away from God the Father. But Jesus was human. Jesus experienced the temptations that he did the same way that we experience our temptations. Satan told Jesus that he should use his power, the power that God gives him, to turn stones into bread so that he could feed his physical hunger. He told Jesus to throw himself off of the highest point in the temple in Jerusalem just to prove that God cares for him. God cares for you. The Father would never let you be harmed, Jesus. Satan told Jesus that he could have rule over all the kingdoms of the world, every kingdom, the entire world, if Jesus would simply turn away from God, stop with this whole God nonsense, and bow down to worship him. And while all of this looks and sounds like physical temptation, it really is Satan tempting Jesus to accept pleasure, to accept the riches of the world, which is Satan's kingdom, and to walk away from the riches of the kingdom of God. This was a battle for Jesus' soul. And of course, Jesus did not give in to those temptations. Because Jesus knew this, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Have you ever seen uh, a movie or read a book or, or heard a song talking about somebody selling their soul to the devil? Anybody? One well-known song, I know most of you will name it for me. What is it? What is it? Charlie Daniels, the devil went down to Georgia. In that song, the devil went down to Georgia because he was looking for a soul to steal. He was in a bind because he was way behind and he was looking to make a deal. And he came across this young man who was playing on a fiddle and playing it hot. And the devil jumped up on a hickory stump. And the whole rest of the song talks about this bet that the devil makes with this boy Johnny. I bet I'm a better fiddle player than you and I will give you this fiddle of gold if you win, and you give me your soul, if I win. There's a British film called Bedazzled, where the devil offers this unhappy young man seven wishes in return for his soul. But then, of course, the devil twists all of the wishes to make them horrible, horrible experiences for this guy. Um, and he frustrates the man's hopes and the man's dreams through these wishes, all the while trying to steal his soul. Most of these films and books and songs like this, they're played for laughs, they're played for entertainment, for comedy, because these works generally don't come from a place where God is honored. But the existence of these songs, these books, these movies, might suggest to us Christians that people are seeking People are looking to make sense of this idea of something called the soul. 
Because even when people don't believe in God, they believe that they have a soul. Now, I don't know where they think the soul goes or what the soul does, but they believe that they have a soul. And Jesus says that there is nothing in the world, not even the whole world itself, that is worth losing your soul over. And Satan knows this, and Satan tries to convince us that it is worth it to trade our souls for something in the world. He tries to convince us that Jesus' words are a lie. Satan wants to convince us that happiness comes in the form of things. Happiness comes in the form of money and power and fame and fortune and all of these things. He wants you to believe that his way is superior to the joy that God offers us. Remember how he tempted Jesus? Turn stones into bread, Jesus. You have to practice self-care. You got to take care of yourself. You need to do whatever you need to do to care for yourself and to be fulfilled. Jump from the temple, Jesus. Jesus, God never wants you to suffer or be hurt. God always wants you to be happy so that you can live the best life for you. Jesus, worship me in exchange for all the kingdoms of the world. You can be rich, Jesus. You can be powerful. Forget all of this God stuff. What I have is for you right here, right in front of you. Let go of that guilt that's imposed by some stupid rules in some dusty old book that was written thousands of years ago, and then you can have it all. Do any of these things sound familiar? When we put them that way, self-care. Self-care is a big one, right? You've got to take care of yourself. You're the only one you can count on. This is a battle. This is a battle fought for our souls. Paul talks about this battle in Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 12, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against, I'm sorry, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a battle. And if our bodies can become bruised and utterly exhausted when we fight physical battles, it only makes sense that our souls might face that same exhaustion. The war for our souls is relentless. There is no stop. There is no truce. There is no ceasefire. It is constant. And we require time to allow our souls to heal. Last week I told you about an anagram that I created years ago when I was contemplating this idea of what Sabbath means. And that anagram was soul and body being allowed to heal. And if God knows that our physical bodies need Sabbath rest, how much more does he know that our souls need Sabbath rest too. Jesus told the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, 
not man for the Sabbath. There is a purpose that God put Sabbath into place, and it has to do with man resting. And we often think that God didn't create anything on the seventh day, right? We read the, the, the Genesis story, six days he created the sun and the moon and the stars and light and fish and birds and men, and it says on the seventh day he rested. But on the seventh day, God was still creating. But this time he was creating a nothing, a time of rest, a time where he stopped working. And he put that into place for us. God wanted humanity to understand the importance of rest. He, he wanted us to understand it so deeply that he actually included it in the Ten Commandments, the most important laws that God gave to Israel. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Sabbath day is a day of rest for our bodies. It is a day of rest for our souls to be refreshed. God wants us to concentrate one day a week, just one day a week, on who He is. He wants us to concentrate on what He has done and is doing and continues to do for humanity. But how do we do this? How do we allow God to heal our souls? How do we rest in God? According to the Jewish tradition, there were, there were three major components. There were a lot of components to the Sabbath day, but there were three major components. And the first, of course, is the ceasing of work. The second is prayer. And the third is the gathering of family and guests for meals. Now, the ceasing of work is kind of a bit of a mystery in the 21st century, right? How many of us, even when we're not working, we're working, right? When I come home from, from teaching at school all day, I don't stop thinking about teaching at school, and I'm doing lesson planning, and I'm grading papers, and I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I'm working all the time. We, we have this kind of idea that we have to be doing something all the time. But when we think about work, what we need to think about is what work actually meant when God gave this commandment to cease work. And the Hebrew word for work here is melacha. Melacha generally refers to the kind of work that is creative or that exercises control over your environment. 
And there are 39 categories of melacha that are forbidden as work. Here they are. They are sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, trapping, slaughtering, flaying, salting meat, kindling a fire, extinguishing a fire, shearing wool, beating wool, dyeing wool, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving threads, separating threads, tying, untying, sewing two stitches, tearing, curling, hide, scraping, hide, cutting, hide up, building, tearing down a building, hitting with a hammer, writing two letters, erasing two letters, and transporting an object from the private domain to the public domain. And now we will have a pop quiz. That's a lot. Those are a lots, a lot of things that are, that are forbidden, that are not supposed to happen on the Sabbath. Now the first set, this first 18 things on this list, all have to do with food. How food is grown, how food is harvested, how food is made into other food, and how food is cooked. The next 15 items have to do with clothing, how clothing is made, how uh, thread is made, how things are sewn together, how things are pieced together to make clothing. And then this last set of items is kind of a, a, a blend. Um, has to do both with shelter and with commerce, so building and tearing down buildings, but also writing contracts, things with your livelihood. You're not supposed to build anything on the Sabbath day. You're not even supposed to hit anything with a hammer on the Sabbath day. Hitting with a hammer would not only include building a building, but would also include things later like ironsmithing making iron tools, making things like that. So all of these kinds of things uh, having to do with commerce as well as with the things that we do in our lives. Writing and erasing letters had to do with writing contracts. You couldn't write a contract on the Sabbath day. Transporting from the private to the public domain, that's, that's how you were going to get your wares to wherever you wanted to sell them. You were taking them from your home and taking them to a public square where you were going to sell them. All of these things had to do with commerce. And while all of these things have a physical component to them, what the Sabbath really means is this. God is telling his people for one day a week, trust me. Trust that I will feed you. Trust that I will clothe you. Trust that I will shelter you. And trust that I will bless the work that you do the other six days of the week so that you are provided for. Jesus put it another way. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Rest in the understanding that God is the one who provides. That's what Sabbath is. Resting in God and trusting Him. Prayer is the second component of Sabbath rest. And, and we talk a lot about prayer here in church and while we rest and we rely on God for our care and to let go of our anxieties, when we do those things, when we, when we take that break, when we're not worried about everything, we're better able to focus our minds on the things of God. 
We're better able to hear from God about what He wants from us and for us. Of course, Sabbath isn't the only day that we pray and we also study God's Word. In the Jewish faith, observant Jews pray three times a day, morning, noon, and night. So this is not something that is unique to Sabbath itself. And Christ never assigned a number of times of prayer. We never read that in the Gospels. That Jesus said, you must pray morning, noon, and evening. He said, whenever you pray. He expected us to pray. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. But on the Sabbath, without the worries of the week, prayer can be more leisurely. How many of you ever get up in the morning and you, you have to kind of rush through your devotional time or your prayer time or your study time because you know you got to get to work, so you just... It's, it's, it's almost like it's another thing to check off on your box, right, before you, get, before you do the rest of your day. If you're taking a Sabbath, you have nothing else to do. You can pray as long as you want. You can study God's Word. You can talk to other people about God all you want because we're not constrained to a schedule. We're not constrained to the things that must be done. Now, on a typical Sabbath, or as the Hebrews call it, Shabbat, it ends right around sunset on the sixth day of the week and ends just after dark on the seventh day. And Sabbath starts with the lighting of the Shabbat candles and the saying of a blessing. It starts with prayer. The woman of the house lights the candles, recites the blessings, and then they move on. They attend a brief evening service. So they'll go to their synagogue, they'll attend a service, about 45 minutes on Friday night. Then they return home and throughout the rest of the Sabbath, the family prays before and after meals and they attend a Sabbath service in the morning. So Saturday morning, they attend a Sabbath service, which incidentally lasts about three hours. So I don't want to hear any complaining here. The family also uses that time to study God's Word, the Torah, for several hours. They study it. They discuss it. And that's in keeping with the command that God gives them to teach His Word to their children. And Sabbath ends with Havdalah, a special ceremony of blessing, which they basically are praying, thank you, God, for this time of Sabbath. Bless the six days that are coming our six days of work. Now, can you imagine taking hours in a day every week to pray and worship the Father? Can you imagine having the time to do that? Not only in private, but in public. They would go to these services for hours. They'd go out into public and they share their faith with one another. And there are a lot of Christians who believe Today, that attending church services are really optional. They're really an unimportant part of our faith. In 2020, less than half of Americans, about 47%, said that they were members of a local congregation. And almost a third of American Christians say that they only attend church out of obligation. I don't really want to go, but I feel it's something I have to do, so I'm going to begrudgingly get myself out of bed and drag myself down to church for an hour and a half, and hopefully they'll have coffee and donuts and things like that, and some rockin' music so I don't fall asleep and the pastor doesn't talk too long. 
But I wonder if these statistics are a result of what church services have become. Or if church services have become these things because of the results of these studies. More than half of church members don't believe that, ch that their church, their particular congregation, is spiritually vital. They don't feel spiritual when they come into church. More than 30% of churchgoers say they have never felt God's presence during a church service. Never. And I wonder if that's because less than 10% of sermons preached in evangelical churches ever mention salvation, redemption, heaven, sin, hell. Less than 10% of all sermons preached in 2019 mentioned hell, sin, salvation, heaven. And I don't know about you, but I believe that church should be a celebration. I believe that when we come into the building in the morning, and I know sometimes I have a hard time with this because sometimes I've stayed up late going to barbecue contests and watching family movies, and I've done all these other things and gone on vacation, but I should be able to walk into this church excited to worship God with other Christians. For as long as we're here, whether it's an hour or two hours or five hours or the whole day if we want to choose, we should be excited to celebrate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We should want to gather on this one day a week to worship, to learn in community, to pray, and we should want to share that excitement with anybody and everybody that we meet. And sadly, many Christians don't feel comfortable inviting people to church or sharing their faith. Even with their own families, they don't like to talk about their faith. Do you know that 78% of unchurched people, that's people who have never gone to church in their entire lives, 78% report never having been invited to a church service. Never been invited to a church service. Almost 50% of American Christians believe that most non-Christians have no interest in hearing about Christ. About 50%. 78% of the unchurched say they would listen to someone who wanted to share what they believed about Christ. We are falling down. 93% of practicing Christians, older Christians, are not comfortable having a conversation about God with their own grandchildren. 93%. Is it because we're embarrassed? Is it because we're afraid of what others will think of us or how they're going to treat us if they know that we're Christians? Or maybe it's because we don't know enough about our own faith to talk about it to somebody else. Remembering and observing the Sabbath day could very well remedy some of these issues. Resting in God, relying on God, worshiping God in private and in public, demonstrating authentic faith in God through this very peculiar practice of Sabbath. And it is a very peculiar practice. No other religion in the world tells their people to rest one day a week. 
Is it possible for us as Christians to live our lives in a way where people are actually curious about my faith? 78% of people who never went to church would listen to us if we talked about Christ. How do I get to feel comfortable doing that? Why am I not comfortable doing that? And interestingly enough, this leads to that third component of Sabbath that I told you about a little bit ago, gathering family and guests around a meal table. As a church in the Brethren in Christ denomination, we report on a lot of end-of-year information and our giving and our members, births, deaths, all of these things. And we also report on church attendance. And our wonderful tech staff back here every, every week uh, counts all of you. <laughs> and they write it down, and we, we keep track of those things because the denomination requires that we report that on our annual reports. And I've noticed something interesting. On the Sundays when we offer food after the service, attendance goes up. It is so weird. The week before the Thanksgiving service, we had like 50 people. Thanksgiving service, when we served Thanksgiving lunch, we had 72 people. The week after that, we had 50 people again. We love to eat, don't we? 54 in attendance today. And 54 in attendance today. Had we had the barbecue contest after church, I'll bet we'd have had about 70. I'm kidding. But think about that. Food is one of the most universal experiences we have because everybody got to eat, right? And some of us like to eat. <laughs> we have fun cooking. We have fun talking about trying new recipes and trying new food, even grilled asparagus that Cindy hates. She got to try last night. Yesterday morning, this was, and it's weird that this happened while I was finishing up preparing this sermon. Yesterday morning, Josh asked uh, Wendy to make pancakes for breakfast. And uh, she's mixing them up. She's making, she had the first batch, and um, she's getting ready to do the second. And Josh, Josh says, I want a giant pancake. And we have a little griddle, you know, the regular size inside griddle. But I looked at Josh, and I was like, how big <laughs> do you want your pancake? And he just kind of smiled, and I kind of looked out at my grill that has a nice little griddle attachment that's like this big. And I took the batter from the thing, and I threw a whole stick of butter on the griddle, and I poured a 13-inch pancake. And I loved it. Tasted pretty good, too. We, we got a couple of things to work out on the flipping process, but... But think about it. When we get together with friends and family, especially people who we haven't seen in a while, what's the first thing we often do? Let's go to dinner. Or come over and have dinner with us, and then we'll go out and do something. We like to sit and eat. And what do we do with our friends, our families, when we're sitting around and we're eating? We're talking. We're having discussions. We're talking about what's going on in our lives. We're talking about what's going on in the world. People who are questionable in their minds talk about politics. But 
We just talk. We tell our stories. We laugh. We cry. Whatever we're doing, we just grow closer together by telling our stories. And on Sabbath, families and their, and their guests would gather and spend hours around the dining table. They would leisurely eat the food that was cooked and prepared earlier in the week. It couldn't be cooked on the Sabbath, so it was cooked earlier in the week. They had slow-roasted meats and slow-cooked stews and challah bread and all kinds of other things, and they would just sit around, have a good time talking, eating. They'd talk about life, talk about the future. Most importantly, they would talk about God. They would talk about God's Word. They would tell the stories of the things that they've seen God do in their lives throughout this past week before the Sabbath. This is how we should be telling people about the things that God does in and for us. Gather some people around and serve some good food. Good food drops a lot of defenses. It really does. We should gather some people. We don't have to walk up to strangers on the street and say, repent or you'll go to hell. We don't have to do that. We can invite that same stranger to go out and have a meal with us and just talk to them. Hear their story. Tell our story. That's how Jesus started his early ministry. When Jesus called the apostles, he didn't walk up to Peter and Andrew and say, repent or you'll go to hell. He saw them out there coming in from a night of fishing. He's like, any bites? No, we didn't, we didn't get anything. Huh. That's a shame. Want to try something? What do you mean? Let's go back out for a bit. I'm going to show you a special place. We're really tired, Jesus. No, just try it. Come on. We'll talk on the way. And they went out, and they caught the biggest catch they'd ever caught in their entire lives. Jesus related to those men where they were. They got involved. He got involved in their lives. He got involved in the things that were interesting to them. Fishing. For Peter and Andrew and James and John, that was their occupation. Fishing. And he would just go out fishing with them. After that catch, Peter and Andrew and James and John told other people. Jesus went from no followers to four followers to eight followers to 12 followers to thousands of followers. He didn't win Peter and Andrew and James and John because he yelled in their faces to repent or they're going to hell. He won them because he gave them a story to tell. You're never going to believe what happened. We came in from a night of fishing and this guy, Jesus, comes up and he convinces us to go back out and he takes us to this place. We caught 168 fish. It was incredible. Followed him ever since. You should follow him too. Let me tell you why. Jesus gave them a story. I don't remember to tell my story enough. 
in some ways as a pastor, I've forgotten how to tell my story. I'm so focused sometimes on, on preaching as my work that I just forget to sit down with folks sometimes over a meal and just tell them my story. Sometimes I forget that Jesus gave me a story to tell. And I'm working on that. But he's given me more stories to tell than he's given me sermons to preach. And what I need to remember is more people are going to come to faith through my story than through my preaching. It's true. And that's something I need to continue to ask the Holy Spirit for help on. But you know what? Jesus has given you a story to tell too. Never sit down with friends around a dinner table, strike up a conversation. Conversation just kind of organically goes to this opportunity for you to share what God has done in your life. Giving you the story to tell. What an opportunity. Just sitting around, eating talking about things, sharing your story, focusing on the people that are at the table. It's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Opportunities that God offers during Sabbath. Opportunities that God offers when we allow Him to rest our bodies and rest our souls and give us time to sit around a leisurely dinner table and have conversations with family and with friends and with other guests. God has told us to keep the Sabbath day, to stop working, to stop worrying about the things that need to be done, to pray and to worship Him alone and with a gathering of believers and to tell our stories while enjoying the food that He provides for us every day. Will you remember the Sabbath day? Will you allow God to heal your body and your soul? Will you allow God to let you rest from the physical and spiritual toil of your lives? and to rest from the spiritual battles of your weak, and to find your strength in Him. Will you allow God to talk through you, to tell your story to people who don't yet know Him, that 78% who have never walked into a church in their lives? Are we willing to do that? It's a monumental shift in the way we live our lives today. Are we willing to take that drastic step to trust God and to tell the stories that He has given us to tell? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for everything 
everything that you provide, everything that you do. We thank you for creation. We thank you for food and clothing and shelter and our ability to work, our ability to provide for our families. All of these things are the things that you give us the ability to do. Father, I don't practice Sabbath. I want to. Father, help us as a congregation to slow down. Help us as a congregation to rest, to rely on you. Help us to worship you, to celebrate you every Sunday that we walk into this building. Help us to tell the stories that you have already given us to tell so that people might, might know you better. That people might come to you and be reconciled to you. I we'll pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do not be anxious for anything, nor ask, What shall I eat, or what shall I drink, or what shall I wear? For the Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God bless you this week.